Welcome to Capital Close-Up. I'm your host, Paul Hodes. We're broadcast on WKXL AM and FM in Concord, New Hampshire, and at 101.9 in beautiful Manchester, New Hampshire. We're podcast wherever you find your podcasts. And if you're listening to this podcast, please make sure to subscribe. Tell all your friends. Why don't you post something about the show on social media and check out all the podcasts under the Beyond Politics banner? Well, it's election season. The primaries in New Hampshire are done. The candidates are chosen. And we are in the sprint to the November finish. My guest today knows a little something about politics. Alicia Preston is a media expert. She's a communications person. She's a consultant. She's a strategist. She's a writer. Uh, she is a native of New Hampshire. She's a lobbyist. She's a co-panelist of mine on the radio show Balance of Power. And she's a Republican of conscience. She's an anti-Trump Republican. And she's a very, very smart person. I can tell you folks that get into a debate with Alicia Preston at your peril because she has facts, she has figures, and she's just really smart. Alicia Preston, welcome to Capital Close Up. That is by far the best introduction I've ever received. And I'm not nearly as interesting as it makes me sound. Well, you've had a fascinating you've had a fascinating career. You you started off in media and politics and then you continued in politics and media and these days you're still talking about politics and consulting and advising. What what drove you towards politics as a young person? Where where did you grow up? Yeah, you know, I grew up in Hampton Beach, New Hampshire, and my uncle was a Democratic state senator for my district. Um, I think most of my childhood, he was there for about 20 years, and politics was our dinner table topic as a child. You know, my mom was, you know, a Republican, my father was a Democrat, and they discussed things, and they discussed things with us as children and in front of us. And I got an early bug. I was writing politics for my high school newspaper, The Winter Chronicle, when I was a teenager, and it was just in my blood yeah. with it. So your uncle, the influential uncle, was that Bob Preston? Yes, Senator Bob Preston. Senator Bob Preston was a Democrat. He was he was a well-known and powerful Democrat in New Hampshire. And you had at least one Democrat in your around the dinner table. So what happened? What what happened? I don't know. I remember once my father was a Democrat and um, a man named Norm DeMores was running for governor. And Mm -hmm. I was chosen as one of the kids in New Hampshire to be a panelist for a gubernatorial debate between Norm DeMores and then Governor Steve Merrill. And again, I was in high school. My father knew Mr. DeMores. And so he introduced me after the debate. And I'm not going to remember exactly, but he said something about your daughter's going to be the first Democratic woman governor. We hadn't had Jean Shaheen yet at the time. And my father looks at him and under his breath goes, <clears throat> she's a Republican. And I was about mm-hmm. 17 at the time. So uh, I don't know. I, it was it was just I was always following and always paying attention. You know, I grew up in the era of Ronald Reagan. Maybe that had some influence. Um, but I, I stuck to that and my beliefs. And I've always just been conservative. 
That's so interesting. I mean, it, 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 I guess it happens in the best of families. I mean, people, folks go astray. What can I tell you? <laughs> but, but it, I, I guess it, it, it's proof of the value of having dinner conversation that involves kids and allowing kids to make up their own minds about who they'll be and what they what they believe and not trying to impose beliefs on them because it sounds like your parents were open-minded and tolerant because they you know they had their own relationship one democrat one one republican that's a pretty that's a pretty vital political <laughs> political relationship and and many households in in the united states are are similar they they're split politically. You know, I think it's so fascinating. I watch on social media posting, pe young people in particular posting. Um, it's so hard to find a, a good conservative girl or it's so hard to find a good progressive boy. And I'm going, that just sounds so boring to me that you're looking for your clone as your partnership. Um, I didn't grow up under that kind of roof. I don't have that kind of household myself. You know, I have a a daughter who just, she's my stepdaughter, she just turned 18 last week and she gets to vote for the very first time. And I didn't pressure her. I asked her, I said, do you know what you're going to register as? And she goes, I think I'm going to register as an independent. I'm not going to register as a Republican. I go, I didn't think you would. She goes, but I think I'm going to register as an independent because I want to feel myself out for the next few years. And I'm really glad, A, she felt comfortable expressing that, both that she didn't want to be a Republican, despite me, and that she wants to feel herself out. She knows she's young and she wants to know where her beliefs go. And I think that's what we should teach young people to do. Well, I think that is happening uh, more and more these days, especially because given the, the sort of tribal politics, the dysfunction, the acrimony between the two parties, more and more people let alone young and, and especially young people. I mean, my kids, my kids are similar. It's, it's really, you know, a pox on a pox on both your parties. I'm an independent. Um, my, my kids, my kids probably lean, lean to the, to the left of Che Guevara, um, <laughs> but, but they're, you know, they've had it, they've had it with both parties. And yet here we are in political season um, and we've got Republicans and Democrats and uh, there's no third party. Uh, in the country at this point that's that's viable. So we have a very strong two-party system and more and more people are choosing to be independent. Um, so I, I'm curious what, uh, you, it looks like one of your first jobs um, was as a news director at WNDS TV. How did you fall into, how did you fall into that job? Well, I had done radio um, for several years before. When I was in college, I did radio, not at the college radio station, at a radio station in town as the news director, uh, starting when I was 19. And then I transitioned to a Concord radio station, WKXL. Um, and Jack Heath was starting a news operation at WNDS. And I had gotten to know him over the years. And so I joined him uh, before the operation opened to help start a news program. And that's how that started. And it was a great run. And then I became news director of that station after being the chief political reporter for, I think, four years, five years. Um, and and I really grew and, and learned the ropes of media under Jack's tutelage. And when he left, I took his job and the rest is history, I guess. It, it, it's a very interesting <laughs> history because you moved from from media at a at a pretty high level uh, to 
uh, right into the fray in politics, and you worked for Craig Benson um, as his communications director. Now he had a um, he had an interesting term, <laughs> a single term as uh, New Hampshire's governor. Uh, was characterized by meetings where he wouldn't let anybody sit down. He had come from a big corporate, big successful corporate world in cable vision, and uh, I think he he wanted to run the state as if it was a business. You were his communications director, and it was a somewhat tempestuous term, <laughs> if I can characterize it that way. And uh, what was what was it like jumping in? Jumping in after reporting about politics, jumping in on on the into a into a job as the communications director for an, a different kind of governor. It was a lot of work, put it that way. Look, Craig was actually a great governor, but you nailed it. He um, he wanted to run it like a business, and he had excellent ideas. He had uh, policies, plans that were right for the state of New Hampshire, that the people elected him to execute. The problem was, I think, why it was a little tempestuous, tempestuous was because as governor of New Hampshire, you are one of the weakest positions of any governor in the state, in the country, meaning you only have limited power. And our constitution set it up that way deliberately. So you can't run it like you're a CEO. And I think that bore some frustration for him. Um, but, you know, his accolades are kind of unknown and unsung because it got overshadowed by kind of his style, which maybe wasn't as uh, adored as his policies. <laughs> he wasn't <laughs> warm. And, he wasn't warm and fuzzy. He wasn't. But, you know, behind closed doors, people didn't know this. He was he loved his children. He was loyal to his team. He was a funny guy. It's just when he got down to business, he got down to business like he did as a CEO and in New Hampshire, the governor position doesn't work that way. Right. It's really hard to be a powerful CEO as governor in New Hampshire when you've got 400 people in the <laughs> House of Representatives, all with very, you know, with different ideas from different walks of life, most many of whom are very inexperienced in politics and trying to figure out which way to go. Then you've got the Senate. Ah, but as governor, you're dealing with the executive council or the governor's council, um, which in New Hampshire um, has to approve uh, all state contracts of any significance. They have to approve all appointments that a governor makes. It's really, it, talk about checks and balances. New Hampshire is a place where the governor really has to be a very adept politician, um, not just an autocrat, but a very adept politician to try to herd the cats along the route that the governor might want to go. Yes. And, you know, I love New Hampshire for that. There's only a few states with executive councils left. We are a state, as you put it, that really puts in the checks and balances. There are many levels of approval before anything gets done. Um, and it's all at the behest of the people because it's who they vote for in these various positions. And I love that about New Hampshire. But it makes governing. You're right. In New Hampshire, you have to be a politician to be governor. So you moved from New Hampshire politics to national politics. Um, you became the national press secretary for a, a big PAC, a political action committee called the 21st Century Freedom PAC. And this was a political action committee whose honorary chairman was then New York Governor George Pataki. So um, I, if I recall correctly, Pataki had presidential 
ambitions. I mean, doesn't everybody have in politics have presidential (laughs) ambitions? You wake up and you look in the mirror and you say, why not me? Maybe (laughs) I could do it. I mean, you know, um, uh, although I rarely thought about running for president, I must say, because if I even breathed anything about it, my 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 dear wife would say, you're out of your mind. Forget it. You're not don't even think about it. So, I mean, it wasn't you know, it wasn't really a dream. But for for George Pataki, who was New York governor, which is a pretty powerful position, having a PAC was a way to exert influence in politics at a very high level. You handled strategic communications, media um, uh, how did you how did you walk into that job and uh, what was that about? Um, that was the greatest job I've ever held in my life. And I, I worked with Governor Pataki on and off for over a decade. Um, it was 2005. To your point, the governor was and he was sitting governor of New York at the time. He was looking at potentially running for president in 2008. So he and his team would come to New Hampshire periodically. And uh, I was one of the people that was working with him as he navigated New Hampshire to introduce him to people, the media, things of that nature. And within a few months, uh, we hit it off. I hit it off with his team, great people. uh, And I was asked to come on board on a national level. And uh, I did, and I loved it. And I had to be in New York a lot, but we got to go to, you know, Iowa a million times, South Carolina, Michigan, Florida, California, you name it. We were all over the place working really hard. And at the end of the day, after he was governor, in 2007, uh, he chose not to run and instead uh, continue doing political action committee work to advance various causes. And so I stayed with him in that. Capacity. Uh, but I got to tell you, George Pataki is one of the greatest men I've ever known. And I'm not just talking politicians. He is brilliant uh, with an exclamation point. He is kind also with an exclamation point and just someone that I wish could have taken that leap to the White House at the right time because he would have been good for the entire country. You know, brilliance and kindness uh, as qualities for people who are in public service um, are, those are two qualities that are often in very short supply. Um, when I, when I got to Congress, I spent the first six months saying, how, how did I get here? And then after (laughs) that, it was, um, uh, looking at some of my colleagues, um, um, especially those across the aisle, in my humble opinion, and I'd say, how did they get here? Um, because the intellectual, the intellectual abilities of some people in politics are not necessarily stellar. And the kindness quotient um, in public service these days seems pretty hard to come by. It certainly is pretty angry out there, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, if 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 we were all a little bit kinder and a little bit more open to uh, other opinions and other points of view, uh, things might be really different. Um, where do you think? How do you see that level of anger and? dissension and tribalism where did where did it come from in american politics because it wasn't always like this some people point to newt gingrich and the contract with america as the as the start some people say social media has exacerbated the tendency for tribalism and and hate but what what's your perspective? Um, you're because you come to this as a person. Um, we've talked about this on on our show, The Balance of Power, um, also broadcast on WKXL, also available as a podcast. But you've talked about 
what it's like to uh, live in this world as what I call a Republican of conscience, somebody who adheres to traditional Republican values. When you call yourself a conservative, um, you know, my sense is you mean small government, low taxes, um, uh, family values that are inclusive, not divisive, um, a strong defense. I mean, those those have always been a traditional traditional Republican values. And in New Hampshire, um, Republicans for the longest time were moderate on social views because they honored New Hampshire's, we'll call it the eccentric libertarian ethic, which is keep government out of my bedroom, keep government out of my business. The less government is the best, the least government is the best government. Um, and that was always the traditional Republican um, position. So how did things morph? Where, how have we arrived at the place we are? Well, first, let me say I agree with your assessment of what a traditional Republican has historically been, and I, I subscribe to that. Um, and it, it, we also were the live and let live people, right? We're, right? we're the ones that say, you know, if you're, if you're doing something and it doesn't hurt me, then you do it, you be you. And that's that's what we've always believed. And we kind of went awry. Some people went awry on the social issues on that front. But I attribute it very much to social media. And here's why. Most of us were raised not to hate. Most of us were raised not to call people names and not to be so judgmental toward others um, that it's unacceptable in a common society, in a shared society. And so we behaved and that kept us in check. And then all of a sudden, the advent of social media, people started to speak out in ways that you wouldn't do if you weren't behind a keyboard, probably because if you did that in the 80s, you get knocked to the ground. Can't do that anymore either. And that's a real part of it. And then these people with this latent hate, they were formerly not allowed to express, found each other. And then they championed each other. And then they hated each other together, or they hated together with each other. And they rallied each other's hate and anger. And never before would you be able to find each other in that way. Because you can get a group of people from New Hampshire and Wyoming and Michigan and Chicago and Florida to all come together. They're just doing it online and they found support, but they found support for their anger and hatred. And I think that's on both sides of the aisle. And, and I think it's a sad commentary. Um, you know, my mother used to say, hate consumes the hater. And she drilled it into us as children. And I drill it into my daughter now because it's true. Hate consumes the hater, and it brings us to the terrible place societally that I think we are right now. I don't hate Democrats. I don't hate people who disagree with me. Uh, I, I don't hate people who live life differently than me. And I would find it boring to surround myself only with people of my own I ideology. And yet people are doing that. The tribalism is dangerous. You know, I, I was elected to the U.S. Congress from New Hampshire in 2006, and um I was privileged to be part of the effort to elect Barack Obama president, the first African-American president. When I got to Congress, um, we were using Blackberries. Uh, there were no iPhones when I first got to Congress. Um, it makes me now feel really ancient, which I am. But <laughs> it also is interesting to think 2006, members of Congress were still using Blackberries iPhones were not ubiquitous. Um, iPads hadn't been invented. Well, they'd been invented, but not marketed yet. 
And along the way, when iPhones and iPads first were introduced, they weren't allowed uh, on the floor of the House of Representatives because the technology was unproven and untried. And I was also there for the first State of the Union address of President Obama when a Republican representative shouted out, you lie. Uh, in the middle of the State of the Union address. And it was really startling. My perspective as a former member of Congress, having run a couple of times, um, is that things start heating up after, after, uh, after Labor Day. Things begin to heat up. The polls and the pollsters and the strategists and the consultants and the barrage of television advertising and social media outreach begins. And finally, sometime, let's say in the last, I'd say about two weeks before the election, people actually start paying attention. For the rest of the time, it seems that folks are sort of vaguely aware. If you're watching the nightly news, you can't escape the commercials, which um, these days, you know, they, they, it, they may look more like Halloween, Halloween, Halloween fright, horror movie um, advertisements than political advertisements, uh, because uh, these days our television and media seem to reflect the general, the general and sad desultory sense of tribalism and fractionalism in our politics instead of a good old contest about issues. But the contest about issues is is there. And there have been some very, there's a very interesting recent poll out now that the candidates are chosen and game on here in New Hampshire. So um, there was uh, an Emerson College poll that was conducted September 14th through 15th. Um, it seemed to have a pretty large sample of voters. It has a margin of error of plus or minus about three and a half points. Um, and while I haven't dug into what is called the cross tabs of of the poll, it had some interesting it had some interesting information out there. Um, first of all, on the New Hampshire gubernatorial election, it, the results of the poll were that Republican Governor Chris Sununu leads Democratic nominee Tom Sherman by 15 points, 52% to 37%. The interest, one of the most interesting, interesting numbers out there, though, was for undecided gubernatorial voters, abortion access is their most important issue. 39% followed by the economy, 17%, which is very interesting because it's not really traditional uh, for a social issue like abortion and abortion rights to take precedence uh, over the economy. Um, the conventional wisdom is it's the economy stupid. And it's always the economy, no matter what you may think. It's just the economy. You can tell you can talk about abortion and social issues, but it's the economy. Forget about abortion. It's the economy. But here we have a poll that says undecided voters in New Hampshire are very concerned about what happened in abortion. And for those of you who are just catching up to the world of politics, the governor signed a budget you know, which contained uh, New Hampshire's first ban of any kind on women's reproductive rights. 
Um, and it was a ban which essentially said uh, no abortions in the third trimester, no, uh, no exceptions um, for rape, incest, health of mother, fetal anomalies, no exceptions. Um, and and there have been some changes along the way to to that as the legislature came to grips with what had happened. Uh, but the governor, um, uh, to some eyes, has been put somewhat on the defensive because there's been a barrage of advertising by Tom Sherman and by other groups coming into New Hampshire supporting other candidates, all on the issue of abortion. What do you think about that issue? Will it hold sway? Um, and does Sherman have a chance? You know, the Democrats have done a very, very good job. They have in the last year messaging this. Um, we've all seen the ads coming from every different angle that Governor Sununu signs the um, biggest abortion ban in New Hampshire history. Well, it's true, uh, only because there's never been a law before. But the fact is, Republicans need to get out there and do a better job explaining what this bill is, which is hard to do because there's an old adage in politics. If you're explaining, you're losing. But we gave Democrats a year a year uh, advantage on this topic. The fact is 80% of the state of New Hampshire agrees with banning third-term abortion. There have been poll after poll after poll, and it always sits around 80%. But the message hasn't been out there that that's what this is. Um, when 80% of the state agrees with something that's very rare, um, but what it says to me with these undecideds is that they're not familiar with the fact that that's what this is. And that's in part attributed to the messaging for the last year that the Democrats have put forward. The fact is Kristen and who sits with 80% of the state of New Hampshire on the issue of abortion. I still maintain that the biggest issue come November, you know, what we do and say in a poll uh, is can be very different than what happens when you go check a box in a ballot. Uh, I think it's going to be the economy. Inflation is rising. We're getting into the winter. Heating bills are going to start coming in. People are going to start looking at Christmas shopping um, and, and they're going to find, you know, people are going to find that they don't have the money they've had in years past. And that will be what hits them. Sometimes the economy is the big thing when it's the economy that catches you at your kitchen table. It always is. Yeah. And, you know, it's going to be a really interesting election. Uh, obviously, Governor Sununu has much, much higher name recognition than Tom Sherman. Um, Sherman has done a really good job raising money, uh, which in politics is the stuff that, uh, that, that is really important. And it's not just important to show a strength of campaign, um, as it may be early on in a campaign, but it's important because with money in the, money in the bank, you can reach out to people who haven't been paying attention. I mean, it's been a long, hot summer. Nobody's really paying that much attention to politics. People are starting to wake up. The television ads are starting to go. And uh, Tom Sherman's ads are very, very, uh, are very powerful um, uh, on the issue of abortion because well, I, I understand what you say about 80% of people in New Hampshire who are not in favor of a third trimester abortions, but most people in New Hampshire are also rational and common sense and in favor of the exceptions that we have come to accept as norm um, for, deal, for, for any uh, proscription against um, abortion in order to protect the health of the mother in cases of rape or incest, in cases um, where there is some fatal fetal anomaly. Uh, people generally have the common sense to say uh, this ought to be a decision 
uh, that's a medical decision in the rare, rare event or rare, rare case that somebody in the third trimester uh, needs an abortion. And unfortunately, the, 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 the far-right Trumpist big lie takeover of the New Hampshire GOP has, has now prevailed um, in New Hampshire. It's now, it's now the way of the GOP. And your Republican of conscience uh, conservative principles have have sort of been taken over, um, at least in my view, by um, uh, by a wing, a faction of the GOP, which makes it very hard for the governor, who is who is generally seen as more moderate, uh, to control his own party and therefore the message that he's got to put out about what's really going on. And as you say, if you're explaining you're in trouble in politics and trying to explain uh, the intricacies of what is or is not allowed, what the vote was or wasn't, what progress was or wasn't made, um, is pretty challenging. And if Sherman gains the backing of the major uh, national uh, democratic forces, and they come in in a big way for him, and his budget uh, is then dwarfed, as often happens in important races. Um, this could be closer than uh, certainly any uh, race that Sununu has faced um, since he was elected. It may be closer than previous races, but I, I think Sununu is probably pretty secure. Now, you know, six, seven weeks is a lifetime in politics. People are just starting to pay attention. But Governor Sununu is a very popular governor, one of the most popular in the country. He did a great job leading us through a pandemic, walking a very fine line of safety versus individual freedom. And I think most of us recognize that. And I, I think, look, Senator Sherman is was my state senator, uh, is my state senator. He's a very good man. He's a very smart man. Um, I just don't think this is the year for him. I think Chris Sununu will secure a fourth term. In the U.S. Senate election, uh, it was thought that Maggie Hassan, uh, incumbent Democrat, was at risk. Um, the Republicans chose retired Brigadier General Don Bolduc, and now the recent Emerson poll shows Hassan leading Bolduc uh, by 11 points. Um, independent voters break for Hassan by a 12-point margin. Both men and women support Hassan over Bolduc. Women support Maggie Hassan by a 16-point margin, men by six. Her favorability is 10 points higher than Bolduc. Nobody knows who Bolduc is. And he has just done the most magnificent, outrageous flip-flop in, 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 in political history. He spent an entire campaign uh, pushing the big lie that Trump was the real president, Biden hadn't won. I mean, he he was he was the guy who pushed it. He was the in all the debates, some of which I, you may have even moderated some of those debates. <laughs> um, he pushed the big lie that 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 Trump was actually should should you know actually won the presidency. He pushed it with a fervor and a passion that was unmatched in the panoply of GOP candidates. And then the other day. The other day, he took it back. Just kidding. <laughs> Just kidding. I, I, I no longer believe the big lie. Just kidding. I really think that Biden is legitimate president. What? What? I'm speechless. What happened? 
What did he do? Why did he do this? What what got into him to do this? He and and his explanation was, well, live and learn. People, people, the 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 rubber flip-flops. You hear you hear that? That's the sound of rubber flip-flops. What what's going on? And how are his base voters in the GOP, the 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 crazy MAGA voters who made him the candidate? How are they going to take this? You know, I think what happened is he looked at the election results, right? And sure, he won, but he got 37% of the vote. That means two-thirds of Republicans rejected his agenda. They rejected the, I mean, and Donald, Don, General Don Bolduck, uh, thank you for your service, sir. But he ran on, on the moment. He ran on the big lie. He ran on voter fraud in 2020. And what I have said about all three of these offices is my concern as a Republican was they're running to win a primary at the expense of a general election. And I, I think, you know, we're going to we as Republicans are going to have a really difficult time in November because of that. All three of the winners in the federal offices ran on the platform of voter fraud in 2020. And the, the, what the results show us is they each only got a third of the Republican vote because the people aren't there. We're not focused on 2020. We're focused on our grocery bills and our heating bills. Some, as you say, may even be focused on abortion. What we're not focused on is what happened in 2020. So you're Don Bolduck. You look at the election results and go, yeah, I won. I lost two thirds of my own party. You're going to switch direction. He did it abruptly. He did it um, in a way that I think will be a hard sell to the public. You know, if we if we step back for a moment, what's interesting also is there was a recent NBC News poll um, conducted on September 9th through 13, a thousand voters, margin of error, 3.1 percent. And it had some pretty interesting uh, in terms of an overall perspective on the election. It showed that voters seem to be favoring Republicans for. Uh, issues around the economy, because we've been suffering from inflation, even though uh, gas prices have, have come down. Uh, inflation, although moderating some in August, is still high, um, and people are very concerned. Um, interest rates are up to try to control inflation. That's made uh, buying a house uh, harder. Uh, as we've talked about on the Balance of Power Roundtable, uh, the price of food when you go to the grocery store is up. And so um, dissatisfaction with Democrats over the um, uh, economy is frankly to be expected. Um, the Republican, uh, so the Democrats are favored by voters around issues of abortion, the social issue, and, and health care. So it it puts it, it's kind of an interesting uh, national perspective on some of the local races. One of the bellwethers for uh, elections has always been what's called the generic congressional ballot. Um, who should control the voters? What's the voters preference on who should control Congress? Um, and what's fascinating is that that those numbers often uh, can, they can be wildly disparate, but they've been fairly even uh, for a pretty long time. If you go back to the spring of 2021, the Democrats had the advantage. Uh, the Republicans uh, gained a slight advantage by March of 2022. And now, as of September, it's absolutely, completely 
evenly split um, down the middle for um, uh, for the two parties, which suggests that, you know, in my view, most of the voters um, uh, in in the United States are what I'd call moderate. Most of the voters would like the party to, would like the parties to come up with common sense, practical solutions that represent a compromise from two different points of view, uh, but two different points of view, which are all aligned with what's in the best interest of the most people in the country. And I think most voters are desperate for a political dialogue and a political system that works that way. And hopefully we'll get back to it. But meanwhile, um, given the major social issues we're facing and the major economic challenges and headwinds we're facing, they're absolutely split on the generic ballot. What's interesting, therefore, to me is that in New Hampshire, they didn't choose moderate GOP uh, voters and uh, candidates in the primary. They chose big lie MAGA Republicans like Don Bolduc, who now apparently is in trouble um, with Maggie Hassan. It makes Maggie Hassan's job a lot easier. Over in the first congressional district, incumbent Democrat Chris Pappas, a businessman uh, from um, uh, Manchester, New Hampshire, um, has is is in my view a somewhat more moderate, uh, somewhat more conservative Democrat than the second district uh, Annie Custer is. He's been trying to skate a line that keeps independent voters on his side uh, in a district that is leans more Republican than the second district. The GOP has chosen as its candidate, Carolyn Levitt. Carolyn Levitt is a 25-year-old former staffer for President Trump who is unabashedly a MAGA big lie Republican. So where did she come from? And what are her prospects? Well, <clears throat> she actually lives in my hometown of Hampton. But, you know, and I've gotten in so much trouble with my fellow Republicans over the last few days on my analysis on this. And I just want to let everyone know it's analysis. It's not my personal desire or wish. Campaigns are math. That's what they are. And the math of this district is that a full 40% of the first congressional district are independents. They don't align with Republicans or Democrats. If you don't align with Republicanism now, you're not going to align with the campaign message of Ms. Levitt. I mean, she ran on the MAGA platform. Um, you know, I was telling someone the other day in a three day period, I got seven mailers from her in my Republican household, and I couldn't tell you anything about her other than she really likes Donald Trump. That doesn't sell with independents. If it's sold with independents, they'd already be registered Republicans. And if Republicans want to win in the first congressional district, you've got to talk about what we're talking about, what the independents, more importantly, are talking about. That suburban woman in that registers as an independent um, is going to make the decision in November. That's just how it works. That's a fact. Campaigns are math, and that's where the numbers lie. And so in order to win, although I think she's got the best shot of any of the three races, federal races, um, she's going to have to redirect herself, not in the way Don Bolduc did with the flip-flop, because you can't get away from it, from what you stood for before, but she's going to have to start talking about what we're talking about. And the problem is going to be the sellability, because can a 25-year-old convince 
a 40-year-old mother of three, that she understands what they're going through with their household expenses. It's a tough mm. sell, but that's what's going to have to happen for her to win. Uh, in the uh, recent Emerson poll, 47% of voters uh, were supporting uh, the incumbent, Chris Pappas, while 42% uh, were supporting Carolyn Levitt. Um 5% said they were going to vote for someone else and 6% were undecided. So if that poll is accurate and, and look, polls are a snapshot in time and anybody can, everybody can explain away a poll by saying, well, it's early, it's September. Um, it's the first really round of polling. Let's see what happens as we get closer. And in fact, um, you know, polls can give you an indication of direction as, as they, as they mount up and people, People keep polling, but these days, polls are polls are notoriously troublesome. I mean, everybody has a cell phone. Can you reach people on their home phones? Well, we don't have home phones. We have cell phones. And are you really reaching people? And how do you know? You know, so let's 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 give polling what it's worth. But it does give us a snapshot. But let me just say that forty-seven to forty-two percent out of the gate in September for an unknown twenty-five-year-old. Uh, MAGA Republican against Chris Pappas, uh, who has done a pretty good job, has been a good communicator, a pretty steady, um, a pretty steady member of Congress. That uh, for for Pappas is 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 if he wasn't woken up before, it's kind of a wake up call about the job that he's got to do. And by the way, he's also out out he's out he's out with television ads that uh, at least the ones I've seen are not as focused on social issues, but he's taking on uh, economic issues and his independence uh, as uh, his campaign theme. Um, uh, but he's got a job to do. And there is a chance, I think, of an upset in the first district. There is There is a chance. But as you say, it looks like um, Ms. Levitt has um, a a job to do in terms of convincing voters that she really understands the real issues, um, and she's going to have to downplay the MAGA big lie part part of the world because that's just not who makes up the bulk of voters in in New Hampshire or the country. Right, and if I were on Carolyn Lovett's campaign, I would be jumping with joy at that poll. I mean, that's a very good poll. For someone who's just coming out of a primary when most people in the district probably weren't paying a whole lot of attention to the Republican primary um, because they're either independents or Democrats. So I think that's an excellent poll for Levitt. Like I said, she's got the best chance of the three to win. Um, but what it also says to me is that's a with numbers that big and only six percent undecided. That's a vote the bums out poll. And what I mean by that is people are unhappy. And they're going to vote against whomever is in office to right. the demise of, of Chris Pappas, because there's yep. no way she's got that much name ID yet. Yep. So that says to me, that's just a vote out whomever's in their poll, which should happen. Let's turn briefly in the minute or so we have left to the second congressional district. It looks like uh, Democrat incumbent Ann Custer, who's held that seat that I used to hold, and she's held it for a while. Uh, is safely in front of the Republican nominee, Bob Burns, 54 to 36 percent. That seems to be a slam dunk. Yes, no, maybe. Yes, slam dunk. Annie Custer can go pick apples for the next seven weeks. She'll get reelected. <laughs> 
Well, I don't think Annie, <laughs> Annie, Annie's a great fundraiser and she's a strong campaigner. Uh, the second district looks like, uh, thankfully, from my point of view, it's a safe bet for Democrats. Well, listen, Alicia Preston, uh, it's really a pleasure to uh, go one on one and and learn about you and hear your perspective. Thanks for joining us on Capital Close Up. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun, Paul. This is Paul Hodes for Capital Close Up. We'll be back next week. Thanks for joining us.